Welcome to the Oasis Fertility Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Tiffany. We've both been through the desert of infertility, and we know how lonely it can feel. That's why we started a support group network. This podcast will feature stories from the fertility community. There are so many incredible stories, and we want to share them all with you. We hope that each episode will inspire you and help you feel less alone. The definition of Oasis is a fertile place in the desert where water is found. Whether it's you or somebody you know who's currently going through the desert, we want these stories to be a source of hope, community, the water, the strength you need to continue on the journey or support those around you. This is your Oasis. Before we get into today's episode, we wanted to mention that we briefly discussed the sensitive topic of miscarriage. We understand that this can be triggering for some individuals, and we sincerely apologize if this brings up any painful emotions to any of our listeners. Welcome back to the Oasis Fertility Podcast. We are here today meeting virtually with Anastasia. We are so excited to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you guys today. We have never heard her story before, so we're really excited. We're going to throw it over to you and ask you the first question, which is how did your fertility journey begin and end and give us uh, the full in between? Wonderful. So um, I will say that this is a quite a long uh, process for me. So um, I start back kind of even before we even started trying for fertility treatment or fertility in general. Um, and, uh, so that kind of started back in 2015, I was living abroad in England and I remember this really vividly because I was going on a trip with my family. We were going to, um, meet my, my mom, my dad, and my brother, we were going to, uh, uh, Spain and my mom and I met up, uh, to fly out together and I started bleeding, which I thought was just my period. And I was in a um, like a midnight mass in Spain. And I remember I was bleeding like through my clothes really, really hard, um, really quickly, but I kind of thought, okay, maybe it's just like a really heavy period. I don't know. And that went on until about February of 2016, um, where I was teaching and I was sitting with my students, um, in a assembly. And in 20 minutes I had bled through my clothes, through three pads onto the chair. And I didn't know what was going on, obviously was very scared. Um, And that night ended up passing large clots. And it wasn't a miscarriage or anything like that. Like I wasn't, I wasn't pregnant. Um, But I ended up going to the emergency room. um, And it was the start of a lot of a lot of doctors and people like really ignoring me because I was a woman and it seemed to be just a woman's problem. You know, you're bleeding, it's nothing. So they gave me some medication, which I believe was just a progesterone pill, um, which was very similar to kind of some of the injections and things they would have given here in Canada. And so they gave me this and they said, take this and your period will stop. Uh, Sure enough, it did. And that was pretty much the extent of the research they did into it. So I ended up coming home uh, later that year in 2016 and thought I was going to go back to um, the UK. I had all of my personal belongings in the UK and then Brexit happened and I wasn't able to go back. So I ended up moving back to Canada with one suitcase worth of my life and basically enough medication to get me to get to see a doctor here. And because they didn't have the equivalent of the pill, they ended up putting me on the Depo-Provera shot, um, which was a very similar kind of effect where it would stop the period, but it of course didn't ever solve what the problem was. And I was on the Depo-Provera shot um, while I met my husband, well now husband, but then partner. And pretty much, I think about three years I was on it, um, which is a lot longer than they really want you to be on it. But because it was the only thing that they knew would stop um, the bleeding, they were happy to continue giving it to me. Um, So then my husband and I decided in 2018 that we wanted to get married. We had planned our wedding before we got engaged, which was a lovely uh, way to do it. And we decided exactly when we wanted to start trying to have kids. And that meant stopping the Depo-Provera shot, which of course made me very nervous because I didn't really know what that was going to look like. So we didn't want to stop it too early where I would be bleeding through our wedding um, or our honeymoon. 
So we decided to stop it in 2019, the summer of 2019. And hopefully by that fall, things would maybe go back to normal. I remember seeing my um, one of my family doctors or nurses there, and I was expressing my worry about getting pregnant. And I don't know why it never had been an issue prior to this, but I think just with this unknown stuff that had started, I said how important it was for me to be a mom. And she, I remember her saying, you know, science is amazing. We can get you pregnant no matter what the problem is. Like really, like we can do this for you. So I was really settled by that um, and decided, okay, we're going to stop it and see what happens. So my period, uh, I say that with air quotes because I don't actually know whatever my period looked like if it was, came back in um, the fall and basically didn't stop again until the summer of 2020. Um, and I was back in the emergency room, um, the summer of 2020, uh, in August because I was bleeding so heavily that it just looked like a crime scene, like all the time. And it was horrible and traumatic. Um, I remember calling my boss and telling her I wasn't able to make it to work because I couldn't leave the washroom. And I ended up in the emergency room and I was again, dismissed completely. They, asked me if I wanted, if I was there to get my hemoglobin checked. And at that point I was, didn't know what that word meant. So I said, no. And she said, well, your blood's fine. You're not bleeding out. I don't know why you're here. So I ended up going home and I had had a referral from my family doctor to see a fertility clinic in my city. But of course the wait list is very, very long. And, and I hadn't waited a full year yet. So I called them and I was crying um, and asking them and begging them to get me in as soon as possible because no one was going to take it seriously anymore and I wasn't able to stop bleeding. And at least at a fertility clinic, maybe they could dive a little bit deeper into the issues. So they ended up making an appointment for me about two weeks later. And that was the start of like anybody assessing me and to see what the problem was. So they ran a few tests when we went in. My husband came in with me. It was the first appointment I had. And unfortunately, uh, it was like one of the more traumatic uh, appointments. Couldn't get the biopsy. And I don't know if it was because I was bleeding so badly, but they couldn't. So I ended up leaving that appointment unable to walk and just horribly traumatic. And I, I was apologizing profusely. They basically said, well, we just, we don't think you have endometriosis. So that's probably nothing. And we won't come back to that. We're not going to put you through this anymore. That's probably not what the issue is. Let's just move on. And I was grateful that I didn't have to do a biopsy again, because I uh, ended up seeing a therapist immediately after that appointment, because I knew I would never be able to go back into a room like that yeah. again without some support. So my fertility doctor um, ended up deciding that she wanted to test and see if I was ovulating. So she put me on letrozole and she monitored me for three cycles. And every time she called, she would like call with such hopeful news. She was like, you're almost ovulating. You're, you weren't ovulating the last one. You're ovulating a little bit more, like your numbers are getting a little bit higher. And so every call I was really hopeful, you know, and she was, we were doing kind of like monitored time cycles. And by Christmas of 2020, I successfully ovulated for the first time. And I knew that because it was the most painful thing I've ever experienced that my body did. I could feel the egg coming out, like bursting out and coming down the tube. And I would say every ovulation after that was almost like a day. I had to be off for a day or two. So I, I remember Christmas Eve or Christmas day, my mom had to give me like a heat pack, but she was running around so excited that I was ovulating because Aww. everything seemed so scary. Yeah. And she was so excited that this is like, you know, that this is a possibility for us. Um, they had also tested my AMH, which is, I'm not a doctor and I, I don't, 100% know what all of these testing are, but I believe it was more about what the your egg count and reserve look like rather than like what your eggs eggs look like, just your reserve. Um, so they called me in January 2021 and said that the numbers they used, an average would be between three and 20, and mine came back 0 0.6. So I had like no eggs. And a couple weeks later, I was using ovulation strips again to check. And my ovulation strip never went down. It just continuously stayed up. 
And I was on the phone with a friend of mine and I was like, I don't know what that means. Like, I just want to take a pregnancy test and see. And it was positive. And I was actually pregnant while I had the call that my AMH was so low wow. and that everything had felt so sad and scary, but um, it was really promising. So I was able to surprise my family and surprise my husband's family and tell everyone, you know, in our immediate family that we were pregnant. And I didn't at that point really understand anything about pregnancy, about what numbers, beta numbers look like and what to expect in an ultrasound. And, you know, I wasn't really sure how far along I was, um, but it was a very early miscarriage at that point. We had our numbers when never went over 300. Uh, my ultrasound didn't show anything. So my doctor kind of said, you know, it's, it's at least, you know, you can get pregnant, which I know no one really loves to hear that because it doesn't mean that you are pregnant. Um, but it did give me a little bit of hope. So knowing that I could get pregnant, we continued with the monitor cycles and I had what I thought was a period in March. And then again, the same thing happened where we were testing with uh, ovulation tests and they just never went down. They were like blazingly positive for multiple days. And this was just before Easter in 2021. And I took a pregnancy test and it was strong, really strong positive. So what they thought happened is actually I had implantation bleeding in March and I had gotten pregnant in March and was pregnant there. And I was probably about seven or eight weeks. They said, you know, we're going to send you for an ultrasound because we should be able to see something. I don't remember the ultrasound. I know that they don't in where I am, they don't show you what they're looking at. They don't tell you what they're seeing. Um, And uh, so I just was at home with my mom and my dad and we were playing board games and I got a call from the hospital and the hospital said, we didn't see the baby, but your numbers are rising. And I said, okay, no problem. And she said, like, you need to come back to the hospital. Like we think you're having an ectopic pregnancy. And I had no idea. I don't, I remember everything about that phone call, but I don't remember feeling anything. Cause I remember thinking, no, it's probably wrong. My mom kept asking them, no, no, like there's a chance you're wrong. And they said, yeah, I guess there's a chance we're wrong, but we really don't think we are. So they said, get your bags packed and, and come through the emergency room. They looked again, they couldn't see any sack. They couldn't see the baby, but again, my numbers were rising. So I had a doctor come to see me about two o'clock that morning and said, and laid everything out and said, you know, we don't know where it's located. It could be really close to your ovary, which means we're going to have to take the whole thing, which could put you in menopause. And I kept saying, oh, it's fine. Like I, it's okay. I I have a feeling it's going to be fine. If you need to do that, you need to do that. And she kept asking, are you feeling pain? Are you? And I said, no, like I'm absolutely fine. So they brought me upstairs to a room on a floor which was the labor and delivery floor, which was really hard. And I shared a room with a beautiful woman who um, was also not going through any fertility things, but because the hospital was so busy, they kind of stuck us together. And we spent the nights staying up talking about our like life. And this woman was uh, not well at all. And she was just sharing her life story with me. And it was really, it was really magical to be able to like be in with another woman who kind of, was able to talk to me about this stuff. And so by Sunday, they got me into surgery and the surgery was horrific in the way that I had never had surgery. I didn't know what to expect. Um, They gave me a lot of medication to kind of drug me and help me not feel pain, but it meant that I wasn't conscious for a lot of things. So the day seems very spotty to me getting home. I remember saying to my husband, I was hungry. And then all of a sudden I was home and we had food and I didn't remember the drive and I didn't remember getting there. And, um, it, I ended up taking about seven weeks off of work because I was grieving, um, and, and really struggling with that time. They originally had told me that they could do the shot, which is an option for a lot of people. So it's not an invasive and it'll just kind of naturally bring your numbers down and then the baby can pass that way. But my liver enzymes, every time I get pregnant skyrocket. So I've never been able to have that experience. So I've always had to have surgical intervention with anything that they're um, unsure about. And they said in the surgery that uh, they flushed the other fallopian tube. It looked amazing. Um, It looked clear. There was nothing that made them seem that, you know, maybe the, the egg would get stuck or anything like that. Everything looked great. 
one of the doctors had mentioned, which I think is a really interesting fact, that um, just because you have only one fallopian tube, you still have a chance of getting an egg from both sides because your eggs and your tubes actually kind of come around the back of your uterus. Um, in all pictures, they kind of look like it's flat outward, but there is a chance that one egg can jump from one side when there is no tube to the other side. So you do actually have a chance um, when you ovulate from the opposite side, because normally our bodies will ovulate on one side one month and then the other side the other month. So um, that was really helpful to think that it wasn't like I was losing a month every time. So, so you ended up lo losing your fallopian tube in that first loss. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I don't know where they never told me where or how far up or down it was, but the, the tube did come out. Right. Um, and, um, but that's a so, life-saving procedure because it is. like, a, yeah, if it's, if a, if a baby is conceived in the fallopian tube, it can actually take the life of the mother. Exactly. Yeah. If it, and it, that was the thing is they kept asking me if I was feeling sick um, because if it ruptured, it can cause internal bleeding and can kill you pretty quickly. And so I didn't, I didn't realize any of that. And of course you have a lot of pain in general being in the hospital and being uncomfortable. So I wasn't really aware of what I was supposed to be looking for, but uh, luckily nothing ever happened. They never said that I had any rupture or anything like that. So it seemed like it was a very smooth removal. So that was good. One tube with your AMH being so low, you have a 2% chance of conceiving every time with everything we're giving you. Like we're making sure you're for sure ovulating. We're making sure that everything's going to happen. You've got a 2% chance. And I don't know what in me every single time said like, I don't care. Like that doesn't, that's <laughs> clearly like I've, I've, I've beaten the odds of getting pregnant the first time I've beaten the odds of getting pregnant a second time. You know, it just feels like everything seems like it should work for me. And uh, she said, as long as you're willing, you know, you do have to pay for it and you pay for, I'll say this now, uh, at least where I am in the clinic that I was going to, you don't pay for the procedure, but you pay to have the sperm washed. And that's about $500 at the clinic that I was at. Um, they monitor you up until, so my, my um, protocol was they used letrozole to make sure that I was ovulating. They monitored me. They made sure that I was ovulating. They didn't mind depend on what side I was ovulating on. And most of the time I had multiple follicles. So sometimes I would, I would ovulate multiple, but uh, so I did four IUIs. And again, my doctor was so amazing that the clinic was down the hall and she knew when my scheduled IUIs were. And she started coming in with a little mini portable ultrasound and would put it on my stomach and say, I'm going to let you watch it happen. And she was, and the, even then, I can't know, I don't know if it was a nurse or a doctor who was providing the, the procedures. And they said, we've never even seen that happen. Like we've never seen yeah, someone. Yeah, I've definitely never heard of that. That's yeah. So she was really adamant about making sure I was like fully understanding of what was going on. Um, so uh, every single time she came in and she'd show us and sometimes she'd even say, let me do it. I'd, I'd love to be able to do it. So I was always saying, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like I'm going to watch myself get pregnant. Like that's amazing. Yeah. So we did four IUIs and the fourth one, which was on March 3rd, was our final one. Uh, they kind of recommend doing four and then jumping over to IVF. Um, and the fourth one was positive. So that was really wonderful. The numbers were rising really well, um, but I was bleeding. So my doctor kind of said, uh, we're obviously going to look into everything as soon as possible. But to prepare for possibly a miscarriage. I asked her if she thought I was having another ectopic and she said no, because our numbers were really good. Um, so the first ultrasound we had, we saw a sac, which is the first um, time we had seen a sac. So we were very excited. Um, I was just in recovery from an injury where I wasn't able to drive. Um, so I was always doing these appointments with um, family or somebody was driving me to them or anything like that. So when I got the call from that one, I was over at my in-laws and they were very, very excited, jumping up and down. Oh my gosh, it looks really positive for us. And then a week later, they decided to do a follow-up. And I remember like 
yelling at them and I was saying that there was no possible way they had checked my tubes everything was clear there's no way that I have this happening again and they said that they were really positive that that was what was happening so they had to take me to the ER and basically prep for surgery as soon as possible um, especially since I was quite a bit further along at this time and um, I was at least six or seven weeks um, if not further along at that point so I started panicking, obviously, for the idea that I had to do this and go through this again, because the first time it felt possible that things could happen, but I knew that I can't get pregnant with no tubes um, without going through IVF. And they had retested my AMH just before this, and my AMH came back lower than they can even register on a test. So wow. before it was 0.6, and this time it was less than 0.5, and they don't tell you how much that is because they can't actively test it. So I was really feeling um, upset about it. But of course, I'm panicking about the idea that I'm going to have to go get surgery, but also panicking because my mother-in-law had given me the ticket for her to get out of the underground parking lot. Right. And I had it with me. And so she wasn't able to leave. So I was trying to explain to them that I could not go have surgery right now because my mother-in-law was stuck in the parking garage <laughs> and they were able to get somebody to, to figure that all out. And then I started making the phone calls to let family, my family know um, that I was going to be in surgery. Now, where we were located, where I live is not in the city where my fertility treatments are nor is it the city where my husband works, but it is the city where my family lives. So I started calling everybody to see if they could meet me while I was waiting for my husband who was doing a presentation in a meeting. And the first person who was able to come was my brother. I remember sitting in the emergency room bawling, like just, I must've looked absolutely crazy, but I could not stop and I needed somebody there. So my brother came, but because of COVID, he wasn't allowed in the building. So they waited, they said, you can go out to him and we'll call you when you're ready. So my brother was out in the um, parking lot. I called my dad. Again, I remember the, like the absolute drop in his voice of just saying, I'm losing another one. And he ran there and then my mom ran there and we were all in the parking lot just sobbing. And I know that it's very, I don't want to say uneducated topic because I just don't think it's just, it's not something that is taught about in general. I remember my dad really not understanding what it meant. Um, so when I was going into surgery, my dad said, well, yeah, but you know, there's, it's fine. You know, she's going to be safe. And my mom said, like, she could die. If you understand why I'm crying so hard, it's not because she's losing a baby. It's because I could lose my daughter. And I don't think my dad even understood that. And it's nothing against him. It's that it's just so underinformed. Like people are, don't know what an ectopic pregnancy really is. And of course, it doesn't just mean it's in the tube. It means it's just in an unknown area. And some of them are really dangerous. And some of them are a little bit easier. And if you can get a shot and get rid of it really quickly, it can be resolved really quickly. But going into surgery can be, you know, rather scary. Now, I will backtrack a little bit by saying that I had recently gotten back in touch with an old best friend of mine from high school during the time we were going through all this fertility stuff. And she had a daughter. She had spoken to me during the times where she thought um, she was having some fertility issues, but managed to come out the other side with a beautiful little girl. Her stance on this always was that she would help me do whatever it took to be able to get to have family. She had offered to give me her eggs in a lunchtime appointment, a lunchtime meetup we had um, about a year or so beforehand. And I really didn't ever know what that meant because I really didn't think we'd need that. And we were in the waiting room and I texted her and said, I'm losing my last tube. Like the baby's not in the right spot. And she called and said, I'm starting tomorrow. Like you will have my eggs. You don't have wow. to do anything. And I called my doctor and again, must have sounded absolutely crazy. But she said, you know, maybe we can think about it. Don't don't jump into anything right away. And I said, no, we're doing IVF and my friend is donating her eggs for us. And 
I was really adamant about that happening. And again, she was like, we'll talk about this after surgery. Don't worry. Like (laughs) you don't need to think about it. I'm already ready. (laughs) But I said, yeah, I was like, she's starting tomorrow. It's fine. Um, so we ended up going home and going back the next day for surgery and that surgery was phenomenal. I will say it was never, whenever I say I had a bad experience, it was never that the people were bad. It was obviously like, it's a traumatic experience to go through a really horrible surgery and to, you know, you're, you're leaving without a baby again, and you're leaving without a part of your body. So that was always really hard, but this time I advocated more for a less drugged experience, I would say. So I, I said no to a lot of pain medication and it was a much more easy experience. I healed really quickly. I was up and moving a lot faster and we were sticking to our word that we were starting as soon as humanly possible because we knew that I really wanted to have a baby and I knew that she would be that opportunity for us. Now, that being said, you don't this isn't the choice that you have to make if your AMH is low. This is the choice that we made because you can have a government funded cycle where we are located in Ontario, but there is a long wait list for it. And because I really never thought I'd have to go through IVF, I didn't ever apply for it. Um, And knowing that we wanted to start tomorrow meant that we needed to pay for the cycle and it was going to be expensive, especially going through um, with a donor egg. So we decided that we were going to start and just pay for it because we didn't want to wait. By June of that year, we had started the process. We were ready to go. Um, And we had to go to a city outside of where we were, um, outside of where both of us were, because my girlfriend doesn't even live in the city that we live in. Um, So we were traveling to a new clinic um, to start IVF. And we were told that this was going to be a long process, that we were told that this is going to be... Um, something that's not going to be an overnight solution and we might change our mind because it's going to be really hard. And there was, again, not a cell in my body that believed that this was not the right thing to do. So we did everything as fast as possible. I know we had to do genetic counseling where we had to make sure that both my donor's genes and my husband's genes were compatible, um, which was a process of blood work and some um, like uh, saliva or um, cheek swabs to make sure that they weren't carrying the same genetic uh, material that would cause abnormalities in the baby. Um, We did blood work, which included me getting blood work, her husband getting blood work, my husband getting blood work and her getting blood work. We had to have multiple appointments with all of us. We had to have appointments with um, counselors to make sure that we were basically like sound mind to make sure that we were okay with this decision, which was wonderful. They gave us a lot of really nice techniques and um, things to think about. One of the things that they said was, you know, it takes three things to build a baby. And I was like, no, it doesn't. It takes two. It's an egg and a sperm. And they said, but you can't just put an egg and a sperm on a plate and it'll build a baby. You need a place for it to grow. So they had said that's a way to word it to the children because yeah. she's not a daughter, and whatever baby we have with this, with these eggs, means that the, that child will then have a sibling, a half sibling. So she said, you know, when you are raising the baby, it's really important that you never lie because that's, I think, a lot of where children start that resentment. So she said, you know, you you explain that your auntie had the egg and daddy had the sperm and mommy had the uterus to grow you. And together you can, we, we made you um, and you know how important and wanted you were. So um, that was really wonderful. And the, the doctor again, kept mentioning that this was going to be really overwhelming and there was no way we were going to get it done in like that calendar year. But November of 2023, we had our egg retrieval and they kept telling us that, They had never seen anybody who was just like so gung-ho about doing this. There was not a moment where we hesitated. You know, we had to go through the legal process of making sure that, you know, she was okay signing off her rights to her eggs once they came out. And there was never a hesitation moment in her, which was amazing. Her whole family has always been, this was my best friend when I was 16 years old, um, going through high school. Um, And we've always stayed in touch. Um, We our lives took us in very different places. And um, so when we reconnected as adults on the idea that, you know, now we want to build a family and we want to, you know, find each other like-minded again in that situation, it was really lovely, but 
her parents have always been our biggest supporters. Her sister's been our supporter. Like everybody has come together to say, you deserve this child and we want to get it to you. Um, so when she started doing her retrievals, her mom had mentioned, you know, oh, she's really scared of needles. Meanwhile, her daughter is calling me on her lunch break, giving herself needles in her car because she's so excited about doing this for us. She had her daughter come to all the appointments. So her daughter was able to see her mom getting the ultrasounds done. They talked her daughter through what a blood work meant. So she saw, you know, mommy not being scared of having any of this. And her daughter would say that mommy and Anastasia are building a baby together. And that's how she would describe it. And it was always so heartwarming. She'd send me pictures of her daughter putting on the band-aids and her husband mixing up the medication. And so that was always just so heartwarming to know that every single person was on our side with this. And we also started sharing our story at that point. I started posting about it on my social medias and asking if anyone had questions because I really truly thought that it was a story that not many people had known. And I was never really interested in magically having a baby and people think, oh gosh, it's another person who just, it was easy for. Mm -hmm. I always really wanted to make sure that people understood that like, Social media makes everything shiny and bright. And it doesn't mean that that was ever a shiny and bright moment. There was lots of things that were really hard to get there. And we had our egg retrieval, which I found out when I was researching my story because I didn't remember dates. Our date to start our, our stems was November 18th. We had our egg retrieval um, a about two weeks later. I think it was the 28th that we ended up going in. She was... A superstar. She kept saying that the egg retrieval felt like a spa day, which it does not. Um, <laughs> that is the opposite of a spa day. Um, so she was making everybody laugh. She kept, you know, she was, they give you lots of medication to make sure you're comfortable, which made her even more silly. And that's what I love about her is she's always just been the person that makes me laugh the hardest. And we found out she got, we got 22 eggs from her first retrieval, which was amazing. Um, the next day they said that 17 were mature and 14 had fertilized. And a week later they said we had six embryos and I was just over the moon because it meant that although the minute that surgery was over, uh, the egg retrieval was over. She said, I'll do that again. If you need me to, I'll do it tomorrow. I don't care. But I knew I didn't ever want to put her through any of that, um, anything because I just, I, I knew it was painful, even though she would never say it was we were, you know, really hopeful that those six, one of those would at least lead us to the baby. She came to us for, uh, came with us to all of, well, to our first transfer. And she took photos of us. And I have photos of her like dancing for me, making me laugh while I'm trying to chug all this water because you have to go in with a full bladder. And she was loved that she got to dress up as a nurse and take our picture and all that. So she was so excited. She wasn't able to, that one did not take, but we, you know, had the phone call with her while we took the pregnancy test. So she was all part of that. And then a month later, we did our second one. And on March 4th, we got a positive, um, which March 4th was our transfer. We got a positive about 10 days later. And we found out our due date was exactly the day that our stims had started a year before that. So wow. November 18th wow. was our due date. So a lot of things really just lined up. Obviously, that led to a lot of anxieties because it meant it matched almost exactly to the last pregnancy. You know, there was a lot of um, milestones we had to go through. So I have always um, advocated for people going through therapy. I've always said every single person in the world should go through therapy at some point, whether that is to find out how to best uh, deal with something that might not be happening now, but can happen in the future. One of the things that my doctor says um, that I really like, my, my therapist has always told me, is that you really like facts. So um, while I was stressing every time, my husband said, okay, let's come up with a mantra, a mantra that is going to say, that's going to tell us facts. And his mantra that we held on to that I said almost every day during this pregnancy was it's a new embryo, it's a new pregnancy, and there's a new outcome because we don't have any more fallopian tubes to lose, that gave me a lot of peace. And so for every transfer, for every night where I was up crying because I was so nervous that something was going to happen, he would just continuously remind me it was a new pregnancy. It was a new embryo. It was a new outcome. 
and we welcomed our son on November 8th of last year. So everything went absolutely amazing and we believe it is exactly where we needed to be. He is exactly the little one that we were waiting for and he looks just like his little donor sister, which is amazing. She's very sweet because she says, um, we call them diplings, which was what we were told. Uh, so it's donor siblings. They, uh, her, her daughter says that she has a, a little brother, but he's got different parents. So she knows that she can come visit him anytime. Um, and uh, it's really lovely that now our son has a huge family. He's got you know, grandparents on my side, grandparents on my husband's side, but also he has genetic grandparents and family through her side who love and adore him endlessly. And um, we are really, really grateful for that. So I love hearing a known donor story. My son's also donor conceived. Okay. And But we have a donor from a donor bank. So we don't yeah. have that relationship with the donor or the family or anything, but we've connected with other dibblings, which we also yeah. use. Your situation is just so magical how it all came about and like what a lucky little boy your baby, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. is. Yeah. That's just an incredible story. Um, I've just been here at the edge of my seat just listening to your story and there are just so many emotions <laughs> and just trying yeah. to get it together. But um, you spoke a little bit about your clinic experience, but is there anything that you want to add or share with any of our listeners? I think we were exceedingly lucky with our doctors and our clinics. I know that there is a lot of people that have different experiences, but we got really lucky. Everyone who we ever came in contact with through our fertility journey has been outstanding. I said at the beginning of my story, I struggled with doctors who were not in that field, who had a lot of difficulty kind of figuring out what had ever gone wrong. And that felt very kind of dehumanizing almost because it was just, you're a woman and that's the problem is just, you're a woman. But everybody throughout our two clinics, because we went through one in our city and went through another one uh, when we did IVF, everyone was really lovely. They were efficient and fast. They would tweak anything that we needed to. So when we tried our first transfer and it didn't work, um, my doctor immediately called and said, you know, we really don't think that your body's responding well to this medication. Let's throw that out the window and try a completely different thing. And that's what ended up working for us. So we were really, really happy about the fact that they kind of took into consideration everything rather than just let's try things again and again and again until we've run out of resources. Yeah, I'd say the, yeah definitely. The hardest thing I, I'd say, and this I would assume a lot of people would resonate with this, is that the wait is always the hardest. You can't just walk into a clinic and start the next day. Um, you have to have referrals and you have to have like a timeline in which you're trying before it's not, it's, you know, then it's considered maybe we need to check into it. So those were always difficult. And even the idea that when my girlfriend said, I'm going to help you start this family in April. And yes, we started and got our eggs in November. That's still a chunk of time that can really like deter a lot of people from wanting to go through it. And I can understand why the doctor kept saying, you might not go through this. This might not be what you end up doing because there is so much time and there is so much resources that they need to go through. That was, uh, that was something I struggled with, but we were really lucky in that, our our clinics, our doctors, our nurses, um, still to this day, like I've I've reached out to the the doctor that got us pregnant um, with our son, and I sent her photos, and she personally called me on like at six o'clock on the evening, and she called me from her phone and said, I just I just want to say how much like your story has moved us, and like you did everything you could and it is amazing and we're so happy we could get you there and so we were really really lucky and I'm I'm very grateful and we'll always be very grateful for the people that got us there that's so cool wow what an amazing yeah. relationship you have with them so our question three is what was your desert and what was your oasis on your journey maybe you want to elaborate on sort of the highs and the low points that you experienced I would say there was a it was it was interesting when I was looking back on it because there were so many really outstanding moments and really like amazing. Uh, the other one I would say is that there was this community that we got to be a part of that. Again, I never 
in a million years would want anyone to be a part of it, but it is amazing the people who are in there. And there are people that we found out, uh, you know, as we went through this, friends of my husband, friends of mine, um, people that I grew up with that I had no idea that they had gone through any of this. And it was amazing to reach out. And I, once I started sharing my story, the amount of people that came out of the woodwork and said, my son was born through IVF, or we're currently going through this, or I, you know, told my story on certain platforms and other people said, you know, can I reach out to you? I also want to go through the donor route. Can you tell me? And I've been lucky enough to see a lot of really positive outcomes through it, but I do know that there's a lot of people who are still going through the thick of it. And I think it is really important, the kind of foundation that you guys are building here of that, like, we are all here for each other. And it is a very lonely feeling, but it doesn't have to be because there is like a huge amount of people who understand your story and can help you through it and you don't deserve and don't have to go through it by yourself find the people it's so key me and tiffany feel Mm -hmm. the same like we couldn't agree more that's what got us through our journeys as well community yeah a hundred percent yeah yeah that's been my huge oasis through all of this is that i don't have to be alone and that i never will have to be alone in his in that story and he will never have to be alone because, you know, he can reach out to those people, but he also benefited so much from all of it. So I think Mm -hmm. it's wonderful. Is there anything that you did for your mental health throughout your journey? How did you handle like all these stressful situations that you were going through? So I mentioned uh, one of the first things I did was I got a therapist and I found somebody who was kind of local to me, but could do online, could do phone meetups, could do in-person, whatever. Um, And she's still with me now. I got to introduce her to my son um, about a month ago, and that was a really special um, meeting. That was the first thing that I did for myself was I said, I need to find somebody who I can talk to because I know that right now I might feel good but I might not feel better down the, I'm not, I might not feel great down the road. The other thing I did was sharing my journey. I think, you know, I don't advise everyone to do it because not everyone wants to do it. But for me, sharing what was going on was really important. I posted after our first deck topic, kind of explaining a little bit what was going on. And then I continued to share after we were doing our, our um, do, uh, donor journey. So that was really good. During a lot of the processes, I did acupuncture and you know, they, they do suggest that to kind of help through IVF treatments. I found it more of a time where I could spend reflecting on myself. I got like a genuine pause button on my life for an hour. I would have a nap. My acupuncturist and his whole staff actually met my son uh, about a week ago and they were over the moon, but they would go above and beyond for me they would he'd come in and say oh it's time to wake up and I'd go oh I'm I'm pretty tired and he'd go okay I'll give you more time and he'd let me sleep longer or you know he was just he was fantastic and I highly recommend finding people who you feel really comfortable with in those situations because again I think you you know just as a therapist and everything you want to find somebody who you connect with the other thing that I did um, that I remembered this morning and added to my notes was I did something to commemorate the losses we had so for um, uh, a really long time I had a necklace that I would constantly wear that had the birth flower months of each of our losses and yeah and for anyone who kind of saw us or saw me they wouldn't know what that meant. But if someone commented on it, I was really open about sharing what it meant. Um, and it was something that I wore all the time. And then when my son was born, I got a new one made with his um, birth flower on it and his name on it. Um, but I still kind of alternate. But I found that having some piece of memory for them was really important just so that I felt some peace in that loss. That's amazing. For sure, that would help with your mental health like to to move through the grief of those situations you know and to have something to to really hold on to that's so amazing and and just pointing out that it it does take a village to make a baby um (laughs) your village sounds like was super supportive especially on the medical front um and you've talked about your family a little bit and it sounds like your family and the donor's family were incredible supports as well. But our next question is how has this experience impacted your relationship? Yeah. Um, I would say for my partner, um, 
it gave us, it was a very interesting process with my partner um, because we had talked about having a baby, you know, prior to starting to, to try to conceive, which most people do. Um, we also got the benefit of four years of like really deciding is this exactly what we wanted and talking about every little thing and listening to other people's stories and watching other people have newborns and what they struggled with. And it was a really bonding time for the two of us. Obviously he had to see me go through a lot of pain and I feel horribly that he had to experience that, but I truly think it did bring us like closer together. And, and um, I am forever grateful that he decided that he wanted to do this with us because I would have never gone this route without his blessing and his desire, but it was really always important for us to have children, regardless of what that looked like. I will say, uh, I can't speak for everyone in the infertility community. It is very likely that you will run into people who truly do not understand what we go through and our journey, and they will have something to say. I experienced that uh, quite a bit. Um, I had a lot of people who still to this day ask me questions that kind of baffle me. Um, I have people who say, what if your donor comes back and wants your baby? And like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, nothing. They legally have no responsibility, you know, for this child. They'll ask me like, what, what if happens if your child resents you, you know, for what you chose to do? Goodness. And I think, you know, those are all questions we can keep in our heads. We don't have to, because I don't have an answer to them. You don't um, have anything I, nice to say, then just don't no, say it No, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, and I do think that while we were in the midst of trying and having our losses, a lot of people would project how they thought I was feeling. And so they would say things like, oh, well, I know you don't like pregnant people. So I know that you're not going to, like, you don't want to see me or something. And and that was never the case. I would always say to people, you know, I'm happy to be a support person for you if you're trying to conceive. I always hope that no one has to go through what we're going through, but it might just mean that it takes me a little bit of time to to go through things like going through baby showers. I had to go to a baby shower for somebody whose baby was basically due on my last, like the last loss. Um, and as happy as I was for that person, of course, that's a hard situation to be in because you can't help but think this should be when I should be having my baby shower. But there was never any resentment I hold towards anybody who can have a baby. It just meant it was harder for me to just process my own feelings. And I really wish that people um, would consider the fact that it does not mean that we have hatred in our hearts for people or that we resent somebody or that we hate pregnant people or hate um, the fact that like we can't get there and it has nothing to do with anybody else but ourselves. And that being said, I also thought there was a lot of people I got really close to that I never thought I would because of what we were going through. And I am very grateful for those friendships. It's beautiful to hear some of these relationships that just popped up through like this journey of yours. Yeah. That yeah. became like a good support system for you. Yeah. You just never know who you're going to reach. You never know who you're going to yeah. touch. So that's really beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I had friends who, again, like I came out of the woodwork weeks after our son was born and said, you know, we struggled, we had losses and we have our daughter now. And it, these are people I haven't spoken to in years and years. And just the idea that they felt safe to speak to me about it was really um really and truly beautiful for me because I thought for a moment I was able to be a spot that they could share and they weren't they weren't openly sharing it on their social medias or anything like that but it was really lovely to know that they felt comfortable and safe with me in that moment so that was really important for me all right so we're going to move along to the next question question number six is how did you navigate the financial aspect of the process and how did how did it impact you in your journey you can get a free um, cycle um, in Ontario, but again, it's not an immediate answer. You don't, you don't get to apply and then you start the next day. Depends on the clinic that you're going to, the wait list that they have. I still haven't heard back if I've been accepted then. So knowing that I'd still be waiting would have been really hard. But luckily we were really open with our family about all of this. We were open with both of our families about it. I had gone through the process of looking at adoption, which is very expensive as well. Um, and I uh, was speaking to my parents about it. And when we started looking at IVF, um, I had said to my dad, you know, we, uh, 
we might we might have to go through this and we're not sure what it's going to look like and and he said you know whatever baby you bring home is going to be my grandchild and I'm going to love it and I want to support you through that and there wasn't a moment that made me worry that we weren't going to be able to do this because we had their support so we're very grateful we know that that is not the situation that everyone gets to go through but it meant that we basically felt we could um, fast forward through a lot of wait time because we didn't have to worry. Now, that being said, there was still, you know, hospital visits or sorry, hospital visits out of city. So we had to stay at hotel rooms and we had to pay for gas and pay for dinners and overnight stays and all that jazz. So there was a lot of things that came out of pocket, but um, we were very, very fortunate that we didn't have to worry about it in the long run. So yeah. That's luckily what happened for us. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. You sound super supported throughout this whole process by your family. And that's just so beautiful to hear. Yeah. yeah. So what was the most cringy, wild, weird, or embarrassing moment or experience during your fertility treatment or the journey leading up to it? I was really debating telling this story because this <laughs> makes me look Tell it. So, so silly, but I don't care. I will say it. <laughs> so we did our IUIs. Um, and I think, again, I didn't know what IUIs were. I wasn't really 100% sure what to expect. So I knew that like my husband had to provide a sample. We had to run because again, we don't live in the city where our um, fertility, um, our first fertility thing started. So we had to like run to the city basically as fast as we could to make sure that his sample wasn't going to go bad between uh, the drive and they, he gave it in and they were said, okay, we're going to wash it. We'll call you, you come back in an hour and then you're going to do your IUI. So I said, cool. Didn't know what that meant. I was like, I don't know how you wash sperm, but sounds awesome. So I went in, I had to go by myself because it was through all of um, the uh, COVID procedures and I laid down on the table and I was, you know, awkwardly sitting in the stirrups and just, okay, cool. Someone else is going to go see my downstairs regions. And they say to me, they hold up a tube with this like pink liquid in it. And they go, is this yours? And I was like, what? And they just kept repeating, <laughs> is, is this your sample? And I literally started saying, like, don't remember it being pink. <laughs> and then I realized that there was his name on the bottle and it was the, she was asking me, not that if I recognized this now washed sperm sample, that I couldn't identify the sperm that came from my husband, that she was asking if the name on the bottle matched our names. And I was like, that oh, is so funny. yes. Oh my goodness. Um, and I was, I mean, it, I think it kind of relieved me from feeling so stressed and nervous and oh my gosh, what's happening. And I just started hysterically laughing and she thought I was absolutely crazy because she was like, no, your husband's sperm isn't pink. And I was like, no, I know that, but I didn't know that in the moment. Fun so, fact. yeah. I'm so sure you're I not think the first person to like, no. experience something like that. I'm no. definitely like, ask, can I take a picture of it? Like at the yes. beginning, because I yes. it was cool. So listen, things like that happen all the time. Exactly. <laughs> and I think it, it highlights like how much we don't know about what actually is going mm -hmm. on behind the scenes. And yeah. I just, you know, I was like, okay, now I know that every time they show me a bottle, because it was the process, they had to make sure they're making sure you're getting impregnated by the right sperm. But um, I was like, okay, now I know to read the name on it. I don't have to identify the contents. Um, and it was the thing that stuck with me through like the most of it was like, I can say the stupidest things. It doesn't matter anymore because I'm not supposed to know how this works and it's okay to make mistakes in that way. So yeah. And I mean, I'd say otherwise like cringy, I'd say I really am. I always cringe when people ask those really awkward questions of like, who legally owns my son? Yeah. Um, like those things. I'm just like, do you think that like, I don't have ownership over my own child? Like those kind of things. But again, it's that they don't know. And um, I'm, I remind them that like legally the eggs were mine. The embryos were never hers um, because if we had 14 um, fertilized eggs, um, that doesn't equate to all of those being embryos, which is what has the chance of being a baby. Um, and so once the embryos were developed, that was ours. The eggs were hers prior to her signing off to them. Again, I think I take it as an opportunity to educate people of, of what that means um, and that 
our son is legally ours. <laughs> so that's all that matters. Yeah. Awesome. If you could go back to your first day one, what is one thing that you wish you knew or one thing you wish someone could tell you or that you could say to someone just starting off? I wish that I knew more about what fertility is and what it means and the process from day one. I had no idea, you know, that it's not a high chance for someone who's healthy, whose body works. It's not like a 50 to 100% chance that every time you try, you're going to have a baby. Like it's 10%. And that seems so low. Um, and obviously it changes as your body um, develops and like as you age. Um, but it's just, I wish I knew about everything. I wish I knew the options that were there. I wish I knew that IVF is not the only fertility treatment that can happen. I wish I understood that there are levels of, of interventions that can happen. I didn't understand about, you know, um, letrozole and how that would stimulate ovulation and how that was considered an, a, a fertility treatment. And then going from there that IUIs existed and that, you know, I always assumed that donor meant donor sperm. I didn't realize that there was other types of donor things. And I just, I think it's something that is widely um, ignored or like not talked about in general. I don't know if it's just because it's a female problem and that female reproduction is not, um, not, you know, spoken on or told. Um, the other thing that I would highly, uh, that I wish that I knew and I would highly recommend to people is to find people that you feel really safe and comfortable with and to not keep your pregnancy or your your struggles a secret. Um, there's so many people who say to me, you know, I'm not going to tell anybody because it's recommended you don't say anything for 13 weeks um, because if something happens, then it's it's basically saving those people who I've told their feelings. And I think about the person who then has to go through that loss alone and how that their feelings are basically ignored because they've decided that they didn't want to share. And I wish that if I could say one thing to people who are just starting out, I would say, find the people you feel safe with and share as much as you can. Um, and as early as you can, so that you never have to go through those losses or feelings of unsure and, you know, the weight, because that those, that first trimester weight is beyond anything that anyone's ever going to go through. It's especially if you've gone through losses before, like 13 weeks is a long time to wait to share with somebody that now I have a better chance of having a live birth. And I just, I wish people would stop worrying about other people's emotions and start thinking about the people who are actively going through mm -hmm. that process. Yeah, absolutely. So Love true. that answer. It's so true. <laughs> um, and you, you just touched on it too in that answer, but so we've talked about women's health a little bit throughout this journey, especially going back to like your, you know, your early sort of TTC days. And yeah. so what would you, what would you, like in a perfect world, what would you like to see in the future around fertility treatment, women's health specifically, and then just the general evolution of family planning? You've got a donor conceived child. So, so I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. I would love for in general, um, women's health to not be like this scary daunting thing for, um, like, again, like, I just find that half the time I go in for um, an issue and they, it's just constantly, well, you're a woman and this is normal. So I think in general, there is so much that isn't uh, normalized or that isn't. It's almost like uh, we need to tighten the margins on what's normal so that yeah. abnormal becomes the new normal. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. We know, yeah. we all know in the gym room or the locker room, like in, in school with our friends, we all talk about our periods. We all talk about it, you know, amongst our, at our sleepovers or whatever. We know, like if, if most people are three to five days and they bleed and that's normal, then the one who bleeds for a three months straight with clots yeah. and everything, that's not normal. Why are the yeah. doctors telling us that that's, yeah. that that is normal? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and when like, I yeah. go to the, yeah, when I go to the doctors and they say, let me know if you're bleeding through an overnight pad in like an hour and I go, but I am. And that still doesn't raise any red flags. Mm -hmm. I'm just mm -hmm. kind of like, what is the point of having these 
you know, of these, well, let us know if this happens. And I say something and then they say, but that's fine. You know, you're again, your hemoglobin levels are fine. So you're not bleeding out, but like, how am I going to like exist in a world where I'm just constantly bleeding and, and how am I going to continue on with my own fertility treatments when no one has diagnosed me still to this day, I have no answer. They, they think maybe I'm going through menopause, but there's no there's no hard evidence between anything that's ever gone through. I've never had an outcome where someone says to me, yep, this is definitely what you're going through. Um, so I really wish that there was more, you know, work on women's health um, because that is, that is really difficult. I also would say that for fertility planning, I know how much extra money it costs to use a donor but I also know that we went through that process because we couldn't get naturally pregnant. And I think all the time on the people who just, they want to start a family, but they can't have a baby. If it's the same sex family there, they don't have both parts of the, you know, anatomy to just have a baby for free. Um, and as much as I think I was lucky that I had the money to do so, and that, you know, maybe it doesn't, uh, maybe it's not as easy as it just being free for everybody. It just feels so unfair to those people who want to have a baby and want to grow their family, um, who physically can't just have a baby with the two people that are in their partnership. And I really wish that there, if there's like a dream world situation, that those people would would have access to those fertility treatments with a lot less um, roadblocks put in place, whether that be looking at the donors and having to pay for that, having to pay for the treatments. And, uh, and I know that it, it can be a really, really rough uh, journey for them. And I feel for them and um, yeah, really, really wish that that was something that we could just erase. It was something we could help. Yeah. I love that answer. So we're on our last question now. We believe that everyone who has endured this journey through fertility treatment or adoption or surrogacy is a superhero. So if you could have one superpower, what would it be? I had a lot of difficulty with this question. I don't know why out of all <laughs> of them, like, oh no. Uh, so I answered this in two parts because if it was a relation to fertility, um, I would say that I wish that I had some sort of superpower in order to save children who are in homes that that need um, more love and support and resources. And again, being in the educational field, like you see a lot of that. And I just wish I could scoop those kids up and and give them the 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 childhood that they deserve that will you know set them up the best for their their life. I don't know what that would look like as a superpower. Um, but, um, but then as a, just a cool superpower, I always thought the ability to like be able to see into the future, even if it was like seeing into the future for like five or 10 minutes, I always would think like, you know, if someone's asking like a trivia question and you go, I don't know the answer, but I know the answer is going to come in five minutes. How cool <laughs> would you look if you could just answer the question because you could jump ahead. Yeah. And I was like, I could go on game shows. I could make a lot of money. Yeah. And, that would be <laughs> cool. and I feel like I would never mess up because I could never, you know, if I wanted to go into the future or the past too far ahead, I knew I would mess up somehow. Um, so but five or 10 minutes, that's all I need. And that would be a cool superpower. So <laughs> those are the answers we came up with. Superpower. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I love that. Anastasia, it's been such a pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much for just sharing in so much detail your journey and being so vulnerable with us. Yeah. Honest. This this episode has had us on the edge of our seats the whole time. And um, yeah, we're just so grateful to have you here. And we just want to say to our listeners today, tune in next time. You're going to hear from our friend Steph. She's going to talk about her surrogacy journey. And that's going to be in a couple weeks from now. So don't forget to subscribe, follow, find us on Instagram, OasisFSN, or our website, OasisFSN.com. Anastasia, thank you again. Hey guys, and thanks again for joining us on another great episode. We so appreciate all of you for being here and supporting us along this journey. We've had so much great feedback on this podcast 
It is so encouraging for us to find more people and more experiences to share with you. We also just wanted to let you guys know that we are not medical professionals or mental health practitioners. So please be sure to always speak with your doctor and take your doctor's advice above all else. We're just hoping to share as many stories as possible so that you can find something that you can relate to on your own journey and a sense of community and hope along the way. But if you are in the deep of your journey and you're feeling alone, just know that we have a free support group for anyone on any part of their journey, whether that's infertility, pregnancy, or postpartum due to infertility. You can come and join us. It is absolutely free. It meets every fourth Monday of the month at 7.30 p.m., whether virtually or in person. You can find all of our locations and support groups on any of our social media platforms, as well as our website. Know that you don't have to go through this process alone. There are others like you out there, and we are here to support you along the way. So we will see you in the next episode.